Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm your host. Like Jeff, I'm also a certified financial planner professional. This show is is all about helping you discover what matters most and helping you get your actions and resources in alignment with your goals. We combine excellence in wealth management with the pursuit of meaning and purpose in your life. Jeff Bernier is the founder, president, and chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in Alpharetta, Georgia, a suburb in the greater Atlanta area. Well, Jeff, we're running out the year. What's new? Well, you know, just just trying to get uh, put two twenty uh, twenty twenty in the books, man. I'm looking forward to turning the page. I don't know about you, but oh, best, best uh, be, be glad to say goodbye. Yeah, <laughs> be good to say goodbye to twenty twenty. So yeah, we're good. Uh, like I said, just trying to finish strong here during the holidays and hope things are well with you and your team. Uh, they are. Thanks. Thanks for asking. You also. Yeah. So, hey, Mike, are there are there aspects of wealth management that you know is really important, uh, but maybe you and your firm don't have expertise in some of these some of these finer areas where you need outside professionals? I, Does I, that ever happen to y'all? Of course. I believe that one of the financial planners' role is to be a generalist, know a lot or know a little about a lot of things and how they fit together, but not be the expert on all the details. So, absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think as a, as fiduciary firms, I mean, it's really important not to try to be all things to all people. We need to obviously operate in our area of expertise. And so, again, I agree with you. And that's why we know it's really important to have outside professionals that we collaborate with. And today's guest fits that bill to a T. To, so today we're going to be joined by elder law attorney Dan Munster. And um, really excited about this. I think it's an area that there's a lot of confusion and it will be good to get uh, some some education on this. So Dan is an elder law attorney. Um, He's been dedicated to helping clients in matters uh, involving complex nursing home, Medicaid, elder care planning, long-term care planning, veterans benefits, all these types of areas. And he helps clients, um, you know, understand and navigate these complex regulations that are that are ever changing. Uh, he's had his firm since 1999, but he's been practicing law in this area in Georgia since 1994, uh, and has more than 25 uh, years helping in these kinds in these kinds of issues. He's got an extensive resume and a lot of recognition. He's been named by U.S. News and World Report as you know one of the top lawyers uh, in the country in this area. Um, you know, I could spend the whole show talking about Dan's qualifications and his background, and uh, but I won't. Uh, but I want to get him on the on the call here. So, Dan, welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, and and thank you for not going through the entire <laughs> bio line by line. That can be a little bit 
um, a little bit embarrassing. So thank yeah. you for, for skipping that. Yeah, well, it's important. I mean, I, th I think it's important for people to know, and they can read about you on your website that we'll reference later. But it's it's good to know that you do have the experience and have been recognized. But at any rate, you were referred to me several years back um, by a mutual, um, you know, uh, another advisor, and. Um, and so it's been, you've become a resource to our firm, basically. If we have a technical question in this area, you're, you're our go-to guy. Uh, and, uh, but before we start, I always like to let the audience know a little bit about you and your family and how you got involved in this work. So do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in uh, elder care planning? I would, I would love to. Thank you for asking. Um, it's, it's interesting because almost everybody who works in the aging community when you ask them that question is going to tell you that the reason they got into whatever it is, fill in the blank is because of a personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so at least for me, the reason I ended up working in this area is that for uh, really my entire youth, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and then mm -hmm. my own grandmother moved in and lived with us. And I got to, you know, play cards with her and do crosswords with her. And eventually she, aged out of our home and went into assisted living and then into a nursing home. And through that whole process, I spent a lot of time with her and um, sort of developed an appreciation for being around seniors. And um, it just really fueled me to see how they responded to a young person wanting to spend time with them. And so that, yeah. Um, was just sort of in my DNA. And, and after I graduated from law school, I had a few different opportunities, one of which was with the Senior Citizens Law Project, which is a, a unit within Atlanta Legal Aid. And so I spent several years there um, learning and sort of getting thrown into the fire. And then back in 99 is when I started my own practice. Very cool. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great, that's a great uh, personal story about your calling. I'll call it a calling. Um, but elder law is a complicated area. Uh, you know, I think it's one of those areas that we don't give a lot of attention to until we need it. Uh, we have a family member uh, or, or, or we need it for, our, for ourselves. So can you give us a good explanation of what elder care planning is and, and why it's important? Sure. Um, it's interesting because uh, there are all kinds of different areas of law within the definition of elder care that I don't do. And so that might be social security disability benefits, that might be guardianship, uh, probate, uh, traditional estate planning, just wills and trusts in general. Um, all of that is really within my skill set. It's just not what I choose to focus my practice on. And that's because there are a lot of people who do that. There are very few people who do what what we're here to talk about today, which is the more the the long term care VA and Medicaid uh, planning, which is you know like you said at the outset, it's it's pretty complicated and the learning curve is steep. And because it's not really perceived as super lucrative, there aren't that many people that want to devote a great deal of time to becoming expert in an area where it's not perceived to be lucrative. So right. um, I don't, I don't necessarily mind that. I, I, uh, I, my lights are on and the bills are paid and <laughs> I, I love what I do helping families. So uh, my practice is, is now devoted pretty much exclusively to 
long-term care planning and uh, special needs planning for families with uh, special needs adult children. Um, and there's actually a, a really cool uh, overlap between those two. When a senior client has an adult child with a disability, there's planning that can be done that actually protects and provides for both generations. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's a huge need. And, and of course, um, cost of care, the last time I checked, has not been going down. It has been going up uh, exponentially, uh, I believe. And as we age, at, you know, it gets more and more costly. And as governments are strapped with budget constraints or deficits, um, you know, it's a challenge to pay for care. And so why don't we just start with methods of paying? So when someone needs some type of long-term care, and you could define that if you want, but what are their choices? I mean, what are the methods of paying for senior, what we call senior care or long-term care? Either sure. for Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess the first thing to answer that question I'd like to clarify or explain is Please. sort of the care spectrum because the numbers differ depending on the setting you're talking about. So the care spectrum essentially starts out with in-home care, somebody that just needs a modest, you know, couple hours a day or something. Typically home care companies want blocks of at least four hours uh, in order to s sign you up as a client, but that's a lot less than someone who needs 24 seven care. So in-home care is the, the beginning of that process. Once it becomes clear that somebody needs to move out of their home then we're talking about sort of the middle of the spectrum is the assisted living uh, world. Prior to that, there is something called independent living. That's really just a apartment complex that has an age requirement, but it's really not um, not all that. Not a lot of care. I, I wouldn't yeah. really call it care, right. right? So then sort of the middle of the spectrum is assisted living care. And then at the other end of the spectrum is nursing care. And so those are the different settings in which care can happen, home assisted living or nursing care. The assisted living section, I think it's important to just uh, break that down into a couple of different uh, areas. One is um, memory care assisted living. That would be people who have uh, some sort of dementia like Alzheimer's or Parkinsonian related dementia or in any way they have cognitive impairment and their needs are greater. Um, versus those who, who have physical ailments but who are cognitively sharp. So um, that changes the cost significantly if somebody needs memory care versus not. Right. So in terms of the cost, you mentioned going up. Certainly it is, but at least you know those who are listening to this broadcast in Georgia, they're fortunate because uh, from a cost of living standpoint on a national basis, we're kind of in the, the bottom quarter of that, that, uh, that chart. So what costs three or four thousand dollars a month here costs six or seven thousand dollars a month for assisted living in other parts of the country. Wow. Um, and in terms of nursing care, what costs, you know, the numbers are still staggering: eight, nine, ten thousand dollars a month here in Georgia, indefinitely for potentially years. Um, costs twelve to fourteen thousand dollars a month in other parts of the country. So. We're talking about numbers that could very easily wipe out the average middle American who's got their home paid for and a couple hundred thousand dollars of savings, but um, they haven't prepared for the cost of, of long-term care. So that's why I have a job, you know, and right. so well, why people want to find out what are these financing solutions. And so right. if, the, if, if, if we want to cross off the client's own life savings being erased from our list, then you know what you're asking is what what else is on the list, right? And so, 
Um, I, if we have time later, we can talk about why Medicare is not on the list as, as opposed to Medicaid. Um, but Medicare isn't on the list. So the, the list is really down to just three things if we're talking about not Medicare and not your client's own savings. And so those three things are long-term care insurance, veterans benefits, or Medicaid. Gotcha. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of the, the snapshot that you were looking for, hopefully. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about Medicaid uh, for a moment, because I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation out about Medicaid. Um, so can you just kind of give us a high level as best you can in layman's terms about um, how Medicaid works and how you qualify and who, how you, you know, who, pay, what, what, pay, what it pays and those sure. kind of things at a high level? Sure. So the the first thing, which I guess is now as good as time as any to clarify, sure. is that most everybody who comes to see me is over 65 years old or the adult child of a somebody who's over 65. So basically, everybody's on Medicare. Uh, M- Medicare is a national program. Medicaid is very state-specific. So um, when we talk about qualifying for Medicaid and learning the rules about Medicaid and the things that I might share today here in Georgia – differ dramatically across the country. Even though it's funded with federal Medicaid dollars, each state's program is administered locally, meaning on the state level. Right. Um, Medicare is not need-based. So if you worked and you paid in or your spouse did and occasionally if your parent did, then you're going to qualify for Medicare because of that payment history. Right. Medicaid is a need-based program. It's part of our safety net here in the United States, if you will. And so um, eligibility depends on, as I say to my clients, your stuff. If your stuff is is valued too great, if your monthly income is too high, um, you know things like that, then they're basically going to say, sorry, but we don't think you need help because your stuff is too great. So that's another uh, distinction. Here in Georgia, we have about 35 types of Medicaid. So um, as it relates to elder care and my clients, there's really three classes the home-based class called the Community Care Services Program, and then nursing home Medicaid and hospice Medicaid. Um, the other 32, you know, we have no time to go into. So that's really <laughs> thank you at, at super high level. That's uh, that's what Medicaid is, and um, we can drill down as much as you want on other questions. Oh, per- perfect. Yeah. So yeah. So Medicare is what most of us have. It's government insurance, health insurance, but Medicaid. Uh, is needs based. Medicare is not needs based, and the, the the people that you're dealing with are, um, you know, they've trying to dis, you know determine uh, how you know and what they can qualify for under Medicaid. Um, so great, great. That's very right. helpful. Re- really helpful. You know, one of the things that surprised me early when we were talking years ago was the way the state of Georgia deals with uh, retirement accounts. So can you give us just a broad overview on how retirement accounts are treated in your, I think you used a technical definition while ago that said stuff. So right. your retirement account, well, some of your stuff, how, for, how's Georgia Forgive treat me that? for the, the technical <laughs> term there, but I, I found that uh, I think that my clients prefer me not to use multisyllabic no, I agree. legalese. Yeah. And so um, if I'm just an average guy talking to them about their stuff, um, I think that goes a long way to putting them at ease and oh, I agree. the sort of the attorney client relationship becomes a little bit more collegial rather than just um, 
anyways, I, I kind of take that seriously. So oh, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, anyway, so the, the question about retirement accounts really ties in with more of a, a global misunderstanding about Medicaid, which is the idea that you have to somehow be destitute or, you know, asset less or potentially bankrupt before you can even get help. And one of the best examples of why that that myth is, you know, really just an urban legend is, is that um, retirement accounts, regardless of size, can be, not always, but can be with good planning, treated as exempt for purposes of Medicaid qualification. And what that means, you know, we have to sort of clarify exempt. The opposite of exempt is countable. And so, uh, Medicaid does limit the value of assets that an individual can own or a married applicant can own from a countable standpoint. As far as exempt assets go, someone who's, who's married, there is no, no limit. For somebody who is uh, who's single, there is a limit on one exempt asset, and that's their home with a, a maximum of about $584,000 for that equity. But otherwise, there's, there's really no limit on exempt property. And so um, when we get to talking about retirement accounts and whether those accounts can be exempt for purposes of, of eligibility, um, that's a big deal because you're talking about somebody could have literally hundreds of thousands, or I've had a couple of clients, believe it or not, with a retirement account valued over a million dollars, and they walked in my door already eligible for Medicaid because that's what the law says. Um, so... Um, especially if it's, if it's a retirement account belonging to the spouse of someone in the nursing home, that account is, you know, on the spectrum of how you qualify, uh, a retirement account as exempt, that's the most sacred. So, um, if it's, you know, one of the classes or cases I'm thinking of was a client who's, um, where it was the, the husband who was at home. And he had a, a significant 401k and was still working with three daughters in college and high school. And his wife, because of a medical event, had to be in a nursing home. And, you know, they lived in a, in a house in, in, off Mount Perrin Road. And he had a significant uh, 401k. But like so many families, I'm sure both you and Mike see, there are a lot of people out there who have a home and a 401k and probably not much else after-tax spendable dollars. And so uh, we were able to just straight away file for Medicaid without even any planning in that case. Right. right. The point being that people should not just assume that because they have a home that has value or a retirement account or even other assets, it's usually better to ask a professional about, you know, how far away am I and is long-term care planning a good fit for me? Right. Well, there's so many levels of qualification that it, like I said, it does get complex. So there's no, there's no, you know, blanket statements you can make about it's always true. There's a lot of qualification questions you have to get to, which right. is why, which is why bringing in professionals is, is important. So you talked a little bit about opportunities. Uh, are there specific planning opportunities or pitfalls that we should um, at least identify? I don't know if we can get to a lot of detail on them, but if you've got any thoughts on two or three. Um, well, obviously those are, you know, kind of different things. The idea that there are pitfalls there are, and there are certainly some opportunities as far as the specifics, 
you know, the, the main one I would want to point out today would just be the idea that people are allowed to pay fair market value for goods and services that are rendered to them. You know, the, 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 the rules are very specific that you can't, under normal circumstances, divest assets or give stuff away or hide it in a, in a trust. There's just a lot of misunderstanding about, uh, about how that works. Yeah. Asset movement, the, at, right, yeah. At, at the same time, you know, I just got done telling you that someone's home place is exempt. So right. if they've got a, a $100,000 in a checking account, which would be foolish, but let's say they did, and they had a mortgage that's valued at $100,000 and their home is exempt, what should they do? Pay off their mortgage. Right. You, just, you just protected your $100,000 of, of otherwise countable cash because you tucked it inside an exempt asset. Right. That's not illegal or improper or considered a, a transfer for less than, less than fair value. It causes no penalty. There's no waiting period and you just file for Medicaid the next day. Right. So um, paying debts is a great example. Acquisition of exempt assets, which I know you're going to ask, what are some examples? And I'm going to have to just call time out on that. Because, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's all, like you said, there's so many variables. It's really not safe to say, especially if people are listening to this across state lines and the rules are so different. Um, right. I'd rather just, just say that, you know, consult an elder care attorney and chances are there's a way for you to get some help if you need it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's wise counsel. Um, so, you know, another thing that I hear from time to time is, you know, we talk about Medicaid beds or non-Medicaid beds at facilities. And so I hear a lot of people are concerned about substandard care if they're in a, quote, Medicaid bed. So can you speak to the acceptance process at a facility and, you know, the difference in a private pay bed or a Medicaid bed or if there is this such a thing and just kind of clear that up? At a high yes. level for us as well. Yes, this this is probably the number one uh, thing that I'm uh, is would be my top takeaway for folks who are listening is just to clear up this this misperception that if somebody is ever going to get help through Medicaid, that that means their care is going to be substandard or that it will suffer. And so, to help make that point, aside from the fact that in 27 years I've never had a single com- client come back to me and express regret for qualifying because their their care changed. That's just never happened. And that's part of why I can say with confidence that care doesn't change. The reason it doesn't change is that um, when somebody's in a, a nursing care setting, either they're in a good one, an average one, or a bad one. 97.2% of all of them in Georgia participate in Medicaid. So basically, all of them take both Medicare and Medicaid and private pay. So the question is not, are you on Medicaid somewhere? It's, are you in a good nursing home? You could be private pay in a bad nursing home, and guess what kind of care you're going to get? Bad care, because it's a bad nursing home. Similarly, if you're in a good nursing home and you subsequently qualify for Medicaid, they aren't allowed to retaliate or, or put you in a different room. In fact, the caregivers on the halls aren't even allowed to know that Mr. Jones in 221A is on Medicaid and Mr. Smith in 221B is private pay. They just provide care. Right. So the, 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 the point there is that the real issue that's the question behind the question is, all right, well, that may be true. So h- how do we get a bed in a good nursing home then? 
and then later qualify for Medicaid. And so, um, you know, that's certainly the, the right question to be for people to be asking. And to answer it, you, you have to look at the, the, the revenue structure that the nursing facility industry is, is compensated under. And so at the top of that, uh, that, that food chain, if you will, is, the, is Medicare post-hospital rehab. And so folks who've been in the hospital as a result of a fall or a stroke or, or some other event like a COVID pandemic um, that has led to an infection and the need for rehab, following that, you can get help from Medicare for up to 100 days. That's not long-term care, and that's why Medicare is not on the long-term care financing solution list, right, right. But, it, but it will pay for up to 100 days, and that's the goose that laid the golden egg. So that's where uh, all of these places are, are listed as um, Fred's Nursing and Rehab out on the sign-out front. <laughs> and the reason is they want, they want to be able to, to get that, Medicare. those Medicare dollars. Yeah. Once people come off of Medicare and go on to what's known as uh, intermediate long-term care, that's what non-medical folks like us would, would just call advanced custodial care, people who need help with getting dressed, going to the bathroom, transferring in and out of bed, sometimes even feeding, um, toileting, incontinence care, medication management, all of those things, that's long-term care. And they can either be paid for that care privately if someone's not yet eligible for Medicaid or by Medicaid. So if you're knocking on the door of one of these uh, well-rated, well-respected skilled nursing facilities trying to get a bed and person A is coming from the hospital under Medicare, person B is not, but they have $10 million in the bank and person C is not coming from a hospital and has nothing in the bank, well, they're, they're going to take them in that order. And so understanding that process is, uh, or that analysis is important because so many times families you, you can't create a hospitalization on purpose in order to trigger Medicare. So the, right. the best you can do to control your destiny is to manage your savings in a way which, which gives you the ability to leverage your way in on the middle tier. Last part of the answer is, is that for that reason, it's important for people to recognize that spending your last dollar on your last day in a $6,000 a month assisted living facility or on home care isn't necessarily the best option because it leaves you with no leverage to get a bed in a good nursing home. And yet what most people do and what they might tell you as their financial planner to do is they might say, help me stretch mom's money as long as possible. And, and God forbid, if she outlives her money, we'll, we'll worry about a nursing home and Medicaid then. Well, then it's too late yeah. because when you, when you go knock on that that you know front door of that well-respected nursing home and ask for a bed, and all you can do is say, "Sorry, all I can give you is your worst revenue rate." They're allowed to tell you to go away. Right. Um, yeah. So that's uh, so that's my thought there. Yeah. So that's that's really helpful. So just to summarize what I think I heard you say these last couple of questions is, when you're in a facility, you're in a good facility or a medium facility or a bad facility, how it's being paid the quality of the care is the same. But all things being equal, you're gonna get better opportunity to be in a better facility if you're private pay day one or Medicare day one, either yeah. Medicare or private pay day one. And then if it switches to Medicaid later, there's no issue in terms of you're already in the facility. 
yes, I did not make that point, but you're exactly right. The law flip-flops. So when you're outside trying to get in, they are allowed to ask you about your your financial picture. Yeah. And, and if they don't like what they see, they can decline you. Right. But at the same time, if you are able to get in and then later qualify for Medicaid, they cannot retaliate or kick you out. Right. Perfect. Well, that kind of brings up my next question is, um, you know, in our industry, we've used long-term care insurance uh, and have recommended long-term care insurance from time to time. What is your opinion of uh, of insurance, long-term care insurance in particular? I am, um, I'm definitely a fan. Uh, I think that the system we have is, I don't want to say broken, but it's, it's definitely a system that is not going to be able to sustain itself long-term. And I do think that, uh, you know, avoiding politics, obviously here, <laughs> I, I do wish that Congress and the White House would find a way to build some sort of long-term care uh, component into Medicare or create some additional incentives through, you know, tax code for people to, to self-insure because in the, in the end, people need to take greater responsibility for the cost of their care because I don't think the system is going to be able to sustain itself indefinitely. As far as long-term care insurance goes, as you guys both know, that industry has sort of gave itself a black eye 20 years ago and has now evolved to where traditional straight long-term care insurance isn't, um, you know, there are better, arguably better options, at least for people with, of means. For somebody who, who can't write a $120,000 check for a single premium hybrid investment product, maybe they can afford three or $400 a month and that's all they can afford. That's great too. Whatever you can afford, um, I think it's, as long as it's not resulting in you can't get your medication and you're going hungry, well, then right. I think people should certainly think about it, especially since Georgia um, was actually on the forefront of something. Uh, we were on the forefront of creating our long-term care partnership program between, uh, which is a joint venture basically between Medicaid and private insurance, which essentially says that if you, if you do have the foresight to get long-term care insurance, and you uh, eventually need long-term care and you use up that insurance, then dollar for dollar, your Medicaid asset limit is increased by all of that insurance. So wow. if somebody has yeah. a, a $300,000 policy and they exhaust that pool of money, their asset limit isn't just $2,000 anymore of countable property, which is the limit for someone who's unmarried. It's now $302,000. And that property avoids a state recovery, which is something, you know, we might want to talk about at some point today, because I know there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, well can you can you go ahead and just touch on that quickly? Um, sure. Tell us about the re the recovery, what people think, and what and what's likely to be the the real story. <laughs> well, um, estate recovery has existed for a long time under federal law. Georgia kind of ignored federal law for more than 10 years. Uh, but then in 2007, we, uh, estate recovery came to Georgia. It's the idea that you can go on Medicaid while owning assets, which are valuable and exempt. And that's okay on the front end, but after you're deceased, then, uh, then they're going to ask to be reimbursed what they've spent for you. Now, on first glance, that sounds daunting, 
And yet through the help of an elder care attorney, that's, it's, it's nowhere near as daunting, particularly for clients who are married because transfers between spouses are, um, and I have to say generally, because we're not giving legal advice here, going to be permissible. So it is possible to, to minimize the risk of estate recovery by adapting the way assets are titled between spouses. Even for someone who's unmarried, estate recovery isn't as bad as it sounds for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, when you're on Medicaid, you have a cost share. And so basically, you have to chip in towards the cost of your bill. And most people have a couple thousand dollars a month of income or something. So they're chipping that towards the Medicaid rate, which is the next point. The nursing home's private pay rate. Remember, we just talked about mm-hmm. those three tiers and Medicaid right. is at the bottom. Right. Well, the Medicaid rate is less than the private pay rate. So estate recovery happens at the discounted Medicaid rate after deduction for the cost share you've been participating in all along. Right. And you're deferring the repayment all the way until after you're, you're deceased. So, uh, and on top of all that, through good planning, there are, there are mechanisms you can use to increase income and manufacture a higher cost share to minimize the state recovery. And uh, there's a lot of transfers that actually are permissible that people should probably get some advice from a professional about. Yeah. Um, and so it's really not as bad as it, as it sounds. Um, another point, which is a relatively new law here in Georgia, is that um, any estate which is valued below $25,000 um, is going to avoid estate recovery, and the heirs get to keep that. And estate recovery can only access that which exceeds $25,000. Right. So through good planning, you know, that's actually not that hard to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, well, there is a lot there, and I know there's a lot of other things we could – we could talk about today. I know as a holistic wealth advisors, um, I think Mike and I sometimes feel like the conductor of an orchestra. We, you know, we're, we're going over here to get the, you know, to get the bass and we're going over here to get the, the wind instruments and so forth. And, but we're not the virtuoso in any of them. We, we know a little bit about, about all of them and we have to bring in the virtuoso and you are a virtuoso in this area. And I appreciate your being a resource to us today and, and to the community. You're, you, you care. You obviously have a strong passion for this work, and and you care about the people that you serve. As we get ready to wrap up the show today, uh, Dan, is there anything you'd like to sh- uh, say? Uh, you know, or or final comments or thoughts? Well, I'd love to actually give a round of applause to to you, Jeff, for taking time out to educate your clients and and create a resource library. I'm sure you've got many of these different recordings that you people can tap into whenever they need it. And so that is going above and beyond for your clients. And hopefully, um, I think that as long as they're your clients, they already know that. But um, hopefully some others will hear that and give you guys an opportunity to, to serve their families because this is a it's a unique uh, it's a unique feather in your cap that you're going out of your way to, to spread good information like this. So kudos. Uh, well, thank you, Dan. That was very kind. And uh, this has been, like I said, incredibly helpful. And so if the audience wants to learn more about you and your practice, what's the best way for them to, to, to learn a little bit about you and how to reach you if they have a question? Well, I'm sure that the easiest way is just the, the web. So my website is just the phrase georgiaelderlaw.net spelled out georgiaelderlaw.net and um, certainly they can give me a ring as well and uh, my phone number is there on the website I'm not going to 
start quoting phone numbers <laughs> right now. But well, uh, this, always, yeah. always, always glad to chat with anybody who calls. And if I can help, great. If not, I'll get them to the right person, including you, if you're if they're a good fit for you. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Really appreciate it, Mike. This was pretty pretty detailed stuff, but I think it's really valuable, and and uh, I think this will be one that we will share with people a lot. Uh, who have these kind of questions and they can get a quick primer and then reach out to Dan or other professionals um, on the team. So yeah. thanks so much, Dan. I'm glad to be here. Earlier, Dan was, you know, fairly modest about the area of law that he chose to practice. But I would just tell you, as Jeff and I know, is such a significant need. And when folks that have that need, if you haven't been there yourself, it's almost a desperate feeling. And so we would echo the thanks right back to you, Dan. And thanks so much for just sharing your wisdom to the listeners today. So, all right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Renier. Hope you found today's discussion helpful. If you did, just please do us a favor, head over to iTunes and uh, and check out the show and rate the show there. And, uh, and leave comments as well. We appreciate that. You can also check out previous episodes or Jeff's blog at www.tandemgrowth.com forward slash perspectives. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or Mike or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors LLC does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors LLC does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.